Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Continuing the Alabama Historical Association's commitment to providing remote information during the year of COVID restrictions, Alabama Review editor Matthew Downs interviewed Dr. J. Mills Thornton about his Alabama Review article, The Big Interest Cases, that appeared in the July 2020 issue. This interview appeared originally on Facebook on July 23rd. 2020. Welcome to the first of our author conversations. I'm Matthew Downs. I'm the editor of the Alabama Review, a scholarly journal published in cooperation with the Alabama Historical Association and the University of Mobile. I'm here with author and Professor Mills Thornton. Let me give you a brief bio of Professor Thornton and then we'll talk a little bit about his work. Professor Thornton is Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan where he taught for 35 years before retiring in 2010. He received his PhD from Yale in 1974, where he studied under C. Van Woodward. His dissertation there grew into the first of what were a series of profoundly important books on Alabama Southern American history. The first was Politics and Power in a Slave Society, published in 1978. He followed that with Dividing Lines in 2002, a study of the three cities that are very important in defining the modern civil rights movement in Alabama and across the South, Montgomery, Birmingham, and Selma. Beyond those works, Professor Thornton has written a number of essays and articles across the scope of Alabama history, many of which were collected in his most recent work, 2016's Archipelagos of My South. In the upcoming issue, the Alabama Review, the July issue, Professor Thornton looks at a different period in Alabama history, the period of Alabama statehood, and specifically a series of legal decisions, judicial conflicts, called the big interest cases, which was also the title of the article. Professor Thornton, I thought we might start with a deceptively simple question. What were the big interest cases? At the beginning of Alabama history, in the Territorial Assembly uh, repealed the, any limits on usury. The result was a series of contracts of extraordinarily high interest. For instance, 20% a month. In one of the cases, the principal of the note was $4,400, but the interest was $10,000 a year. All of that produced a series of cases that reached the state Supreme Court three different times and those are known as the big interest cases. They're among the most important events in early Alabama history. So this kind of begs a question. We know in hindsight that kind of lifting limits on interest was probably not a good idea. Why did it happen? What was the context for that sort of decision? Well, at the time the Territorial Assembly first met in February of 1818, there was enormous demand for credit in the state. 
there was only effectively one bank, the Huntsville Bank. A second bank in St. Stephen's would go into operation in fall of 1818. But at, at the beginning of 1818, there was only one bank. It was a small bank and couldn't possibly meet the credit demands, and particularly so because the existing usury limits simply made credit not worth it to people to lend out money. So the idea was among the territorial legislators, if they just repealed all of the usury limit, that would attract credit into the state and create liquidity and allow land transactions to go on. Much of the difficulty came from the fact that the state was open to settlement all at once in 1816, 1817. There was all this land that was being sold off by the government and there was enormous demand for it and all at once because all of these land purchases were going on at the public land sales in Huntsville for North Alabama and in Milledgeville, Georgia for South Alabama. So the demand for credit was enormous. And this was the period of Alabama fever. And so you see all of this promise in Alabama of riches, of, you know, move from your, from your place of economic want and come to a place of bountiful wealth. That's exactly right. This is Alabama fever, the demand for credit. That's what that's about, is bidding up the price of land at these auction sales uh, that the federal government is conducting to inordinate levels. And it's because of the high price of cotton. Just before the Panic of 1819, cotton was selling for 25 cents a pound, which was an enormous sum. Therefore, people were convinced that they could meet the payments on these debts just with one or two cotton crops at a price like that. But what happened, of course, is that just at that moment, the panic intervenes. The panic began in January of 1819, and by the summer, the price of cotton was down to 12 cents a pound and still falling. That meant that all of these contracts, the debtors got a loss to, to meet the payments. That therefore became a major issue at the, at the Constitutional Convention of 1819, which met in July of 1819. And everybody at the Constitutional Convention knew that as soon as the state courts were established, they were going to be flooded with suits for the collection of these debts by the creditors, since these were now non-performing loans. Therefore, how the Constitution set up the state judiciary was crucial both for the creditors attempting to collect and the debtors attempting to deal with debts that they could not pay. The pro-creditor forces at the Constitutional Convention wanted life terms for the judges to insulate the judges from political pressures. The pro-debtor forces wanted six-year terms for the judges so that they would be subject to political pressure and would listen to the needs of the mass of the electorate. That led to a constitutional compromise mm -hmm. in which it was possible to remove judges. They were given life terms, but it was possible to remove them by a two-thirds vote of each house of the legislature for any cause. And then that brings us one of the central figures in your article who I thought was really fascinating, William Kelly. 
if you would tell us about him and then how did he become the hero of Alabama debtors? William Kelly arrived in Huntsville in 1818 from Tennessee and established a law practice devoted entirely to the defense of debtors in these big interest suits. He regarded the creditors as hard-handed and evil people intent on grinding the face of the poor. Well, at any rate, he made himself into an enormously popular political figure and eventually was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1823, and he served from 1823 to 1825 as one of Alabama's U.S. senators. Kelly then ran for the state legislature, became Speaker of the House, and he continued this crusade on behalf of the debtors. And his defense of the debtors in the big interest cases before the state Supreme Court is of a part with his political career and his campaigning for office. One of the really interesting points they talk about in the article is how Kelly goes from having a fairly reasonable argument about debts and usury to this idea that everyone is out to get him and that he must defeat his enemies. I really saw the similarity between this idea of conspiracy and populist politics that Richard Hofstadter talked about. I wonder if you could speak to that or Yes, I think that's right. I think Hofstadter's point in the paranoid style in American politics is precisely that that this is a characteristic of populist politicians, this sense that they are under siege by the wealthy and the powerful. And of course, it's not entirely false. I mean, they are under siege by the wealthy and the powerful. Uh, Certainly in Kelly's case, Creditors regarded him as the devil incarnate and were out to destroy his political career. So that's not wrong. But he did develop a particularly aggressive sense that the wealthy and the powerful in Alabama were engaged in a conspiracy to destroy him. And it led eventually to his conviction that the majority of the Supreme Court who decided against him were a part of this conspiracy. So that led to his petitioning the legislature to impeach them and uh, and remove them from office. These three justices are then brought to trial before the state Senate on Kelly's charges that they're part of this general conspiracy of money capitalists out to destroy the ability of the court to defend the rights of debtors. You might can speak to this better than I could, but it's part of this period in the South more generally that there's this great distrust of entrenched power and institutions that seem to take advantage of the little guy. Absolutely. One of the things I believe is that Andrew Jackson, whom many historians from a national point of view regard as a man who had created Jacksonianism, in fact, was simply building on the political culture of the Old Southwest in which he had grown up. In Alabama, you see in people like William Kelly and also Gabriel Moore and Israel Pickens. These early leaders in Alabama are Jacksonians. They don't know they're Jacksonians because Jackson is not yet president. Um, uh, Jackson is going to take the kind of rhetoric and analysis of the situation in America and build on it once he becomes president. 
all of that is already present in all of the old southwestern states and in spades in Alabama, where it's particularly strong. There is this very strong sense on the part of the yeomanry, on the part of small farmers, that the wealthy are attempting to create an aristocracy. And it is the fear of aristocracy that is at the core of early Alabama politics and at the core of Jacksonianism. It's what gives the pro-debtor politics its emotional force and turns it into not merely a matter of paying off debts, but more than that, for the preservation of American democracy, which is really the way they understand what the battle is about. Well, Professor Thornton, in your opinion, what's the lasting political legacy of the big interest cases, either for kind of statehood era or continuing as far as you'd like to carry it? Well, in the antebellum period, the conflict between the wealthy planters and the yeomanry becomes the very foundation of antebellum politics and continues to be all the way through the antebellum period. Class resentments, the fear of an aristocracy, and racial prejudice, those are the three pillars of antebellum politics. Of course, it's not going to go away after the Civil War. This conflict continues. It takes on new forms, but you see it all the way into the populist movement and Reuben Kolb and on into the 1920s uh, with the rise of Deb Graves and Hugo Black, then into the 1950s with the rise of Big Jim Folsom, and then eventually uh, the rise of George Wallace. All of that is a particular political culture, which is defined in Alabama right from the beginning. That paranoid style continues to be characteristic of the subsequent populist leaders. Bib Graves coined the term to describe them, the big mules, and his crusade against the big mules is of a piece with William Kelly's crusade in the big interest cases. It's really fascinating to see those kind of through lines of Alabama history, I think. Yes. So any other projects you've been working on? What's next? Well, I mentioned my interest is in the problems of the creation of the antebellum two-party system. I am thinking of trying to do something about that. On the Jacksonian side, the predator-debtor conflicts that eventuate in the creation of the Bank of Alabama and then eventually the destruction of the Bank of Alabama. And on the Whig side, the removal of the Andons, the foundation of the Whig Party in Alabama is John Gale and the crusade to remove the Andons. So that draws in the racial prejudice part of the tripartite foundations of antebellum politics. And I think it creates an interesting way of understanding the origins of the antebellum second party system at a level at which it is not usually studied. That's fascinating. Well, Professor Thornton, thank you so much for talking with us. You're entirely welcome. And if you're interested in learning more about the big interest cases, reading more about it, please check out the July issue of the Alabama Review. And happy reading. 
thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.